Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, uh, and I'm joined by uh, my two colleagues per tradition. I've got Ryan Sweet, Director of Real-Time Economics, and uh, Chris Dorides, the Deputy Chief Economist. Hey, guys, we have no guests this week. A little unusual for us. We're going solo, I guess. That's all right. How do you feel about that? A little, you know? Mix it up a little? This <laughs> reminds me of the first couple podcasts we did, right? I mean... I don't think we had guests on the first one That's or two right. or three. A little bit of nostalgia here. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's good to have guests, but I think it's good to you know go it alone here. Uh, I think we'll uh, this will be very productive. Now we're um, on. It probably won't probably won't be an hour and a half podcast. I, I so no. listener, you, you you'll be off the hook. We'll be well. I don't know. <laughs> I don't Ryan's know. pretty long winded, so mm-hmm. could be. Well, now uh, I don't have to be on my best behavior because it's it's you and Chris. Oh, that's true. Oh, that's good. Go. Oh, yeah. Unleashed. Can, uh, yep. Unleashed. Ryan unleashed. Yeah. So uh, how, was your, how was your week? How did, how, did, uh, how did it go this week? Anything unusual? No? No. no. Like Groundhog unusual. Day? Yeah. By the way, that's my favorite movie of all time. Did you guys see Groundhog Day? Oh, yeah. We've, uh, Multiple times. Bill Murray. <laughs> yeah, Bill Murray. And uh, what was the actress's name? She was good. Uh, shoot. Just... Uh, slipped my mind uh but a great movie yeah fantastic yeah. movie yeah it's um, felt like yeah. groundhog day for me for since the pandemic began i know but you know it changed up for me this week you know where i was DC. i spoke at a yeah no i was in uh, miami i spoke at a, a commercial real estate conference naop which is the national Ooh. association of office and industrial hmm i don't know what i don't know what the p stands for uh they'll be mad at me we sponsored, I, apparently Moody sponsored, I didn't know that, uh, so, but it was good to be in front of an audience. I, I had for, forgotten how energizing that is uh, to speak before an audience. Oh, wait, wait, wait. before you move on, yeah. your favorite movie of all movies is Groundhog Day. Yes, it, indeed it is. Indeed it is. I have seen that movie, you know, maybe a dozen times. Yeah, I love that all movie. Right. All right, Chris, what's yeah. your favorite movie? It, Do, you, don't wanna, movie you don't know why? But I mean, that's such a, to me, that is, that's life right there. You know, you do every single day, <laughs> you, know, you do basically the same thing. You yeah. know, sometimes you it's mix it up word. a little it's bit. It's a good movie. Basically, just, yeah, basically. Surprised. And it's all about perfecting, I think, that, that, that day, you know, making sure that, you know, you do uh, the, you, each day is a little bit better than the next day. And, you know, there's, it's not a straight line, obviously. Uh, and, uh, Bill Murray didn't have a straight line, and it's and it, the other thing is it's funny. It's a funny movie. Remember the scene with funny. the with the chipmunk in the truck? That was hilarious. I still laugh, and I've seen it a dozen times, and I still laugh every time I think about it. Anyway, uh, well, uh, we're we're gonna get off this topic, but next week I'm gonna Ryan. I'm gonna ask you what your favorite movie is because I would like to know. No, you'll be surprised. True insight. This is true, and Chris, you too. Feel the dream. And it's not. And it can't be some Italian 1945. Yeah, that's yeah, I know he's going to do that. Oh, some geez. artsy movie director, you know, Rudolph Valentino kind of <laughs> thing going on. Uh, anyway. Uh, More Fellini well, fan. What's that? More of a Federico Fellini fan. Okay. Um, well, this podcast, uh, we got a lot to talk about. Uh, obviously, the uh, data, the statistics, and and uh, what we've learned about how the economy is performing. Uh, it's, we're in a soft uh, patch here. Uh, Delta has done some damage, but uh, we'll talk about that. And then a lot going on in Washington, D.C. 
we've been doing a lot of work, uh, research, writing, uh, and talking about that. So I want to uh, address that. And then uh, the big topic is uh, 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 the long-term, longer-term consequences of the pandemic. We've been so focused on the here and now and kind of just, you know, what's going on this week, last week, what's going to happen next month, next quarter. But we want to take a, just a step back and think about, you know, what are the longer-term implications of the pandemic? Uh, what's the long tail of the pandemic? And uh, we've, we've been, each of us has been thinking about that and we'll focus on a few of the longer term consequences. Okay. So let's uh, dive right in with the statistics and here, let me frame this a little bit. We play this, we play the game obviously where we each, uh, spout off a statistic and the, uh, the rest of the group, uh, tries to figure out what that statistic is. Uh, but, uh, I'm hopeful that this week we can pick statistics that provide insight into the question you know, how is the economy doing? Uh, you, know, you know, really things have uh, slowed down here in the third quarter, the just ended third quarter. Is this October 1st today? Yeah, just ended mm -hmm. third quarter. And um, just how significant is the slowdown? And uh, do, do we have any insight from the data on where we're headed here? Uh, will Q4 be better? Will we pick uh, right back up and uh, kick into gear and uh, which is key to our, our forecast. We're, we remain optimistic. Uh, so with that as a uh, frame, um, uh, let's go to you, Ryan. Uh, why you, what's your statistic for the week or statistics? I got one. So I'm going to 73.4. 73.4. And this is a statistic that came out this week. It did. came out today. Confidence. Oh, it came out today. So we, mm -hmm. University of Michigan? It's not. You, Mich? Nope. No, it's around I there though. It. I, I mean, actually, I, it, it's it's not buried in the report, so you guys are going to give me a ton of grief no. about this number. But it's it's oh, important. I know what it is. I think I know what it is. I, is I haven't it? I, to be to be blunt. I mean, or to be perfectly honest, I haven't had a chance to look at today's data very carefully. This has got to be the ISM manufacturing survey. It's within the ISM. Yeah. Yeah, and it's yeah, probably right. have, has to do with supplier deliveries. Very good. You, your oh. continues. <laughs> wow. <laughs> this deductive reasoning is working. Uh, well, you, you did give me a big hint today. Sti yeah, today's statistics. Yeah, but so that's I did a pretty good job without even looking at the data. Yeah, that that, that that's, almost, that's bordering on clairvoyant, I would say. <laughs> Let's not go that far. <laughs> <laughs> No, you know what it is. It's just I know you. I know you. Yeah, well. you do. I know you well. I know where it's getting to the go. point where we can forecast each other's indicators, not necessarily yeah. pick Ooh. the number. That sounds weird somehow. Uh, you can predict my the indicator I'm going to. That sounds like uh, that's just not good. Uh, you know me too well. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, well, tell us about mm -hmm. the uh, seventy-three point four. What does it mean? What is it, and what does it mean? So, so, so supplier delivery, so it's a diffusion index. Anything greater than 50 indicates slower deliveries, which is you know, getting tied back to the pandemic, global supply chain issues. Uh, this is making it difficult for manufacturers to source materials and to rebuild their inventory. So when you're talking about implications for near-term growth, inventories are making up the bulk of GDP growth in the third quarter and should make up the bulk of growth in the final three months of the year. But if there these supply disruptions continue and linger, we might be kicking GDP further into next year and the second half of this year could come in later than we, what we think. 
I, I may have missed it. Did you say 73.4? Is that a new high? Uh, it's or? not a new high. So the, okay. the recent high was 78.8. But if you take that out, the 73.4 that we got in August is among the highest since the 19, early 1970s. Hmm. Okay. And I know you and Dante, one of our other colleagues, because uh, we were emailing about this last night, uh, have, have developed or in the process of developing a, what do you call it? A supplier delivery? No. Supply, supply chain, chain stress index. Correct. Right. Great name, by the way. You got to give Matt Collier, our, our colleague, all the credit on that one. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. So uh, what is that? What is that index? And uh, are you going to cover that on economic view, by the way? Are we you will. Put it up there? Mm -hmm. Okay. What is it? And what is it saying? So we got a lot of client interest about, uh, you know, they're asking, is there one metric that can kind of highlight, you know, whether or not supply chain issues are getting better, staying the same, or getting worse? So what we did is we went through all the high-frequency data that we have, pulled out all the data that would be relevant to gauging uh, stress in supply chains, and then using, you know, you know basically mashing them all up together, creating an index. Uh, and it does show that things have gotten a little bit worse uh, over the last couple of months. Mm. So, um, how do you? What do you take away from this from, in a broader context? I mean, does this make you more nervous about the outlook? Less nervous? About the same? You know, is this what you expected? Any any, any insight from the the number that uh, bears on the outlook? It makes me a little bit more nervous. Just getting back to you know the composition of GDP growth is going to be very heavy in inventories, and you know if you look at the ISM survey and it's it's got a lot of great anecdotes in there. Uh, all the purchasing manufacturers are grumbling about uh, the availability of commodities and the number of commodities that are listed as in short supply. That list is very very long, so I'm a little concerned that we're not going to get as much. Uh, boost to manufacturing over the next few months and what's penciled in our baseline and that inventories won't add as much to GDP growth. And if you strip out inventories, uh, we're, we barely grew in the third quarter uh, and the fourth quarter is likely going to be the same. Yeah, right. And, and I think this goes right back to the pandemic, right? And the mm -hmm. Delta, because the Delta has yep. disrupted supply chains. I mean, particularly Asia, Asia, Southeast Asia, more specifically got creamed by Delta and that's the beginning of a lot of these supply chains. A lot of the manufacturing facilities are sitting in Southeast Asia at the start of the supply chains, like chip chip production, which we've talked about in the past. Yeah, delivery times are increasing, and the number of ships off ports in the U.S. continues to climb. So we just got these bottlenecks all through the supply chain, and unfortunately, they're not going to get resolved, you know, overnight. So it's going to take a few months. So, so your supply chain stress index, which is a compilation of all these measures of what's going on in the supply chain globally, that's at a sitting at a record high. Is that right? Yeah, we or haven't close to. You had the great suggestion of going further back. We only went back to what do we do? Two, uh, 2012. So we're going to yeah. extend it back further. But I would imagine, unless we go back into the 70s, I think it's it's going to be the highest Probably. you know in the past 30 yeah. years. Right. Okay. And and the last data point is for the month of August. Or is uh, it? We got the ISM today, so we'll run it for August soon. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, I'm very curious. We have, so we have the September ISM, but then we're missing a few like inventory to sales ratios that we'll get next week, so we'll have the August data point then. But it, right. I think it's going to get worse. And the, the other thing, the, uh, why we wanted to create this index is now we can kind of quantify the impact on you know, employment, GDP from uh, mm -hmm. supply strain uh, stress.
Great. Yeah, great. That'd be, that'll be very interesting to see, see what kind of impact it's had. Okay. Okay. Very good. Um, Chris, you're up. Uh, what's your statistic? All right. It was, it's a $6. At least it was $6. Yes. This is going to give it away. $6 yesterday, $5 and 60 cents right now. So it's a pretty volatile movement. And this is uh, a price for, um, got to be some kind of commodity because it's trading daily. Yep. Uh, it's, uh, we know it's not copper because copper is sitting just north of $4 uh, uh, per pound. We know it's not gold. Uh, gold is, I think, at $1,750 an ounce. Yeah, that's not close to $6. No, I'm just trying to show you that I know these numbers pretty well. So this better not be something like, you know, a bushel of wheat or something. You know? No, no. Okay, no, no oh, wheat. The only one I can think of close to $6 is natural gas. You got oh, it. Oh, that's it. That You're right. It. Excellent. Way to go, Ryan. Yeah. Six dollars. So it's five dollars seventy cents per million BTU. Correct. Right now. Uh, okay. All right. That's a really good one, actually. Um, yeah. So yeah. give us context. So, so where's it been? Why is it here? What's going on? So it's up big, um, up 140 percent plus. Well, again, volatile. So 130, 140 percent over the last year. So that's that's a huge uh, increase. And I'm particularly worried about it, uh, mostly because of Europe. Uh, natural gas is really important uh, to the European economy. Italy, of course, when I was there, lots of people concerned about their electric bills, gas bills uh, going up. Uh, so I, I worry that uh, this rise in natural gas prices, due to some of the supply chain bottlenecks you mentioned, Ryan, is going to crimp uh, consumer spending, right? People are gonna have to pay utility bills, You know, who knows what the winter holds here. And that could um, that could take some of the steam out of the expected uh, consumer spending over the holiday season next few months. So, so natural gas in the United States, natural gas prices it seems like forever have been sitting somewhere between two buck fifty and three dollars per million BTU, and right. now all of a sudden they've basically doubled. Yeah. And uh, in Europe. Am I wrong, Chris? But I, I think I heard twenty-five dollars per million BTU. Is is that right? Did I hear that right? That in maybe it was in the UK. Twenty uh, is that twenty-five dollars per million BTU? Is that right? That, that could know? be. It, it is a uh, regional market, right? Because yeah, of the, it is. You know, there is liquid natural gas that trades to some extent, but largely uh, regional. So it, that very well could be the case. I I haven't seen that, but I can take yeah. a closer look. Do you, so. What's going on? Why are prices up? all of a sudden? Well, you got yeah. a number of uh, different factors, right? Uh, everything from tension uh, between Germany and Russia or Europe more broadly in Russia, right? So that's clearly uh, playing a role. Because Russia provides the bulk of natural gas to the rest of Europe. Yeah. Correct. Correct. And at the same time, you you know, there's uh, related to this is the climate change issues in Europe migrating or uh, away from coal and looking for alternative fuels, but those might not be ready yet. So you have this... Uh, this crunch time there. You just have the restarting of the economy itself more broadly, right? So during the pandemic, we cut back on uh, on some of the exploration and, and fracking that was going on. Now we have to restart that. So clearly that could be an issue in some uh, markets as well. So you just have this confluence of all these different factors uh, playing a role here in, in terms of the, the price increase. And then suddenly you have more demand coming up. Is, could it also be the case, and I, I, I'm just throwing this out, is it that because prices are, you said these are regional markets, but they are connected 
in, to some degree through liquefied natural gas, LNG. So yes. could it be the case that prices are so high in Europe, it makes sense for natural gas producers here in the U.S. to put it, liquefy it, put it on a, a ship and send it over to Europe and that contributing to price, higher prices here? Is that possible? Certainly possible. Also Asia, uh, of course, uh, as they're restarting their, their factories during the recovery period here, also demanding more. So yeah, it's, that is certainly a, a factor here in terms of how these... Uh, how the distribution of this uh, uh, liquefied natural gas. Hey, I got a good story for you on natural gas in Europe. Uh, <laughs> this this might have been, I don't know, 15 years ago or something. And I don't know why I was invited to this event, but you know that the pickle, the building, the pickle in London, it looks like a pickle. They call it, mm, I think they yeah. call it the pickle. It's a beautiful building. And at the top of the pickle, they have, you know, an area for events. And so I was invited to come uh, for uh, an event that was being sponsored by Gazprom. Gazprom is, or at least it was, I guess it still is, the Russian gas company. And they had just inked a deal to ship natural gas to Europe. And this was like the, you know, uh, a uh, congratulatory event, you know, everyone saying nice things about everybody else. I remember the CEO of Gazprom. Oh, and by the way, we all got part party gifts. And the party gift was a, a natural gas light, a lighter for a pilot. You know those pilot lights. I don't. Mm -hmm. I don't know if people still use them, but a pilot light. If your pilot light goes out, you can use this thing to to turn it back on, right? You like a little lighter. So I have. I think I have it somewhere. But anyway, the uh, CEO of Gazprom is this. Uh, you know, large guy, Russian, and all I remember him is, and he's up on this stage looking down at all the rest of us, and I can remember him saying. You will buy my gas. You will buy my gas. Uh, he said it like three times. It scared the hell out of me, actually. Um, but uh, now the Europeans may be ruining the day that they, they ink that deal because, uh, you know, uh, that, that's a pretty difficult position to be in. Um, anyway, yeah. uh, that's, a, that's a really good one. So, mm -hmm. I, geez, I, it, how does that uh, bear on the uh, on the outlook. Uh, I guess that makes us makes you a little less optimistic. Uh, yeah, huh? absolutely. It's a it's a negative, right? Well, the one thing I will say though, the, we got a lot of fracking capacity here, right? And it feels like, at least so far, the natural gas uh, frackers have not really kicked into gear. I don't, I don't think they've really ramped up production. So they've been very, quote unquote, disciplined about uh, raising production. I don't know how long that can last, you know, at these prices, because they can make a lot of money, I think. So I, I'd be surprised if we don't see uh, fracking kick into a higher gear. Although, as you point out, maybe because of the climate change issues and other regulation, it might be a little bit more difficult to do that this go around. I don't know. Yeah, I've heard the frackers have some, uh, like everyone else, uh, labor problems, right? They're, ah. they're having trouble finding workers as well. So that that's also contributing. Uh, yeah to some of the yeah, supply good constraints. Point. So. Good point. You guys are bringing me down. Jeez, Louise. All right, I'm well, going to try to... What about excess savings? Shouldn't that help cushion the blow from higher energy prices? We've got $2.5 trillion yeah, dollars yeah, in excess uh, savings. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, yeah, actually, we got another data point this week on that, right? We got the Fed's... I think we got the Fed's financial accounts this week or last week, and we used that. That's the... Uh, the Fed every quarter releases data on uh, balance sheets of household balance sheets, uh, asset side, liability side, and uh, for corporations, businesses. 
and we uh, can you can take a look at that and, and construct estimates of saving based on changes in the value of assets and liabilities. If you think about it for a second, you, you can connect those dots. Anyway, uh, we use that data to uh, calculate excess saving, and uh, in Q2 2021, the excess saving is about $2.5 trillion. Excess means a, that amount above which we would have expected if there had not been any pandemic and people had not sheltered in place and had not stayed at home and not spent. Uh, so $2.5 trillion, that that's a lot of savings, right? That's about what is that? That's probably 12, 13% of GDP, something like that. So, uh, of course, a lot of that sits with high, very high income households. So, uh, who aren't going to be affected by these natural gas prices, but lower income households will have less excess saving, but they have some. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm going to try to cheer you up, uh, with my statistic. Uh, and this is going to be, I'm just going to say it see if you can get it, but I won't make you, you know, Suffer. Remain in pain for very long. I'll give you a hint. <laughs> point five, point five. This Did it come out monthly... today? No. Okay, I'll give you the hint. It came out on Monday. This is um, a monthly statistic. It comes out every month. Uh, it's key to the GDP numbers. Uh, we, you know, follow it pretty carefully. Um, what else can I say to make this easier? Uh, the oh, top it's, line. It's, it's got to be durable goods, something in durable goods. Spending. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you got it. Durable goods. Uh, durable goods is the spending by businesses on, uh, well, uh, durable goods. And that 0.5 is the increase, the percent increase in, uh, in uh, new orders for uh, non-defense uh, capital goods x transportation spending i know that sounds like a mouthful but what that is is a very good window into business investment uh 0.5 um and shipments were up uh 0.5 is new orders shipments were up unfilled orders uh, they were up and they're all very high i mean record highs i mean by orders of magnitude high so businesses are investing uh, very aggressively uh, a lot of it's machinery, primary metals, um, a little bit on um, computer equipment. Although it's you know it's it's up relative to where it's been in, in the last decade or so, but still well below where it was back in the '90s and early 2000s. But uh, I'd say broad-based uh, improvement in investment. Um, doesn't that that to me gives me you know businesses are expanding, right? We've got a record number of open job positions, almost 11 million, typically. In a really good economy, we have six and a half, seven million open positions. So a lot of open positions, and they're investing ag very aggressively. So uh, to me, that that's that, that's fun, more fundamental, right? It feels like underneath all the things that are going on in the economy, including the fallout from the Delta variant, that you know businesses remain inherently up, upbeat, optimistic, willing to expand, able to expand. Profits are strong. Uh, g gives me a good uh, good vibe about where the economy's headed. It, how do yeah. you guys feel about that? Is that consistent with your view? Yeah, overall, still positive. Do you, how much of that do you think is substitution away from labor? Uh, investments in automation, machinery, do you think that's the a major factor here, or is this more general investment to see into, into existing processes? I think it's shifting. I, well, obviously, mm -hmm. during at the start of the pandemic, I think it was work work from home, right? So mm -hmm. people, business had to invest in new equipment, new software to get their 
employees up and running in a work from home environment. And, and, uh, you know, uh, each of us did that, right? We got uh, most Moody's employees got some kind of stipend. I think we all did. I'm not sure for going out and buying whatever we needed to be able to do what we're doing now. And that's working from home, uh, which by the way, is one of the consequences, long-term consequences of the pandemic we'll come back to. So I think early on, there was a surge in investment related to remote work. And, but that's now shifting. Now, because uh, businesses are having difficulty finding labor, you know, they're raising wages. uh, But the other way to address the labor shortage is to invest in labor saving technology. Right. And and that's what they're doing. Um, In fact, the other interesting thing that's happening is because, you know, if if you go back, you know, five, 10 years ago, there was a shift in investment spending the business investment dollars towards energy investment, you know, into the fracking field kind of took away from investment in labor saving technology. But now that investment has been made where businesses aren't investing nearly as much, a lot less capital is flowing into the energy sector. And it feels like that's freeing it up for kind of labor saving technology. And maybe that's one reason why underlying productivity growth has improved. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. so. I I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So before we move on, I, I just want to remind you of the grief you gave me when I picked durable goods a few podcasts ago saying, really? Oh, you gave me a ton of grief. You're like, no one pays attention to durable goods. <laughs> I said that? Yeah, Ben's got the tape. Well, that's the beauty of this podcast is that we'll rewind it. And we'll, well you, it's on record. Really? I, that's, uh, I picked core I capital goods. You picked core capital goods? Yeah. You probably picked it when no one was watching it. Right. What okay. can I say? All right. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, no, I, I, you're right. Uh, it's kind of an unsung statistic, I think, right? I mean, mm-hmm. A lot of people, many people don't watch it, but it's a really it's good important. window yeah, into business uh, investment, which is a good window into business uh, expansion decisions, which is key to economic growth. So to me, that, the, go ahead. I was going to mention that that's one indicator. There's a couple that can really move the needle in our daily high frequency GDP model, mm. which takes all the source data that feeds into the Bureau of Economic Analysis's estimate of GDP. That one can really move the needle a lot. In, uh, I don't think you I've said it in this podcast, but are, where are we sitting on that on, on Q3 GDP? Is it three nine? Is it still three? Yeah, it's running right now. Yeah, because we got personal income and spending this morning. I yeah. mean, the spending and the, the prices are the most important. Uh, but my guess is it's going to come down, maybe to right. three and so, a half. So, so the three point nine is our uh, estimate of third quarter GDP growth based on the monthly statistics, including things like durable goods that we, we've Correct. gotten. And 3.9, and as you pointed out just a few minutes ago, a lot of that is just inventories, just the, just the uh, re- rebuilding of some inventory, or, the, or maybe even just simply the re- less reduction in inventory, Correct. which would be yep. an ad. So three percentage yeah. points of GDP Three, three percentage points. Okay. So if, it's th- if, it comes in, if it comes in at 3.9 and, G- and inventories are three, that you're saying the rest of the economy added only 0.9. Correct. Tough quarter. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was a rough one. Tough and remember, quarter. we started off north of seven. So yeah, I know. The data has soured pretty quickly. Now, my, I'm taking, this is in my mind's eye, uh, that um, the bulk of the weakness was in July going into August, and September feels a little bit better to me. And given the uh, winding down of infections, the Delta, if you take a look at the, a graph of infections, it feels like that has rolled over and starting to decline. That suggests that Q4 should uh, be better, 
that growth should revive. Mm-hmm. And that's in our forecast. So are we, are you, would we, are you going to change? Do you think that's still a pretty good forecast? First of all, is my characterization of the data correct? July being bad, August not quite as bad, September feeling better. <clears throat> do you agree with that? And what do you think that implies for Q4 going into 2022? Chris looks skeptical. Oh, really? My my recollection is uh, August was pretty bad too. <laughs> so, yeah. China. Well, the employment number July, was bad but... in August, but that lags the GDP, right? Yeah. July was bad output GDP. You got a bad well, spending, we'll... right? Yeah. Our sales weren't weren't they down mm-hmm. in August too? Retail sales. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so know. you're growing more pessimistic about Q4? But then, no, too, then? Uh, no, no, for Q4. But I I agree with you in terms of the infections and COVID seems to be you know moving in the right direction. I think that's going to set us up for. Uh, some strength in in Q4. I'd be curious for Ryan's high frequency indicator for Q4. It is October first, right? So, hey Chris, come on. Oh, that's really the pressure on poor me. guy. Yeah. You know, no, we, we actually, we, I can, <laughs> I can get it to you for the next podcast because we get. Uh, do we get? No, no, no. We gotta wait. Vehicle sales is the the trigger for. I think uh, we get that today, Ryan. We did. Is yeah. that September or October? September. It's gotta be September. Oh, oh, oh September. Yeah, yeah, I need the October number, and then I can I can run it. Oh, so we're a month away. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. I know he's I got know. a number though. I have always got a number. I got a number <laughs> yeah. for everything. By the way, talking about numbers, uh, next Friday is the September employment report. What's that going to be? Not good. <gasps> Relative to expectations. Week. So yeah, the early consensus, and I haven't, you know, uh, I always all the economists we have to submit our forecast on Fridays. So towards the late end of the day, we'll have like a more solid consensus number. But right now, it's five hundred thousand for total non-farm payrolls, the net change. And I'm taking the under. So, so less than five hundred k. Well, at this point, don't ask me why. Okay, I'm not gonna give away the the recipe. Secret sauce. UI claims. Oh, we can get to UI claims. We which we need to talk about. Let's talk about it now. So UI claims, unemployment insurance claims. They feel like they're pushing up a little bit, right? Yeah, moving in the wrong direction. 362,000 362, uh, last week. That was up 11,000. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's, it, 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 since it was declining, and then since when has it been basically flat to up? Really in the last month or six weeks? So it's longer than that? Uh, three weeks, I believe, right? Three weeks, <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah. Okay. That's the first time it's been rising since last year, April. How was that? Yeah. Are you? What do you take away from that? I just, it's just a reflection of the soft uh, patch that we're in. Yeah, I think it's COVID. It was COVID. California, Texas, and Michigan saw the biggest increases. I think it's COVID-related. Um, and now okay. that infections are coming back down, I'm hopeful that things start moving in, in the right, right. direction. So. And Michigan's partly autos. Yeah. So the great thing about the, the claims data is that uh, states can comment about what drove either the increase or the decrease in claims. Uh, and that's why you can identify hurricane effects. Uh, and Michigan and other auto-heavy states have mentioned layoffs in the automobile industry. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, that I mean, this is an indicator we should be watching to gauge whether our outlook for Q4, a Q4 bounce, a, a recovery in Q4 is is going to come to pass or not. And right now, not coming into September, you don't feel it's not there yet. Okay. Yeah, we just be careful claims. Because yeah. California has really driven the, the increase in the last two weeks. Oh. And California uh, announced recently uh, that 
people that have had or are still unemployed or either have their hours cut can uh, file for regular state unemployment insurance benefits. So we might be having a lot of refilers. So it might not be basically not mm -hmm. newly unemployed workers, people just refiling again. Because claims count the number of people that file, not necessarily receive unemployment insurance benefits. Got it. So you're saying, it's well, it's not great that UI claims are drifting higher here. That can't be good. No. But it's probably overstating the case. Yeah, and recall this, that yeah. California's UI benefit system was a disaster during the pandemic. So they had a lot of fraud issues and, you know, so kind of kind of need to take these numbers with a little grain of salt. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then uh, a statistic that, you know, we've been following regularly that seems to be signaling something else, just the opposite of a weakening economy. It's a kind of, you know, all else being equal signals a strengthening economy, I guess. Well, I want to hear your view is the rise in the 10 year treasury yield. So for context, we got as low as I believe 1.2, 1.25% on the 10 year treasury yield back, I'd say in May, maybe in, in June, maybe I think more closely to June. And, and then it, in the last week or so, it's, it's really the bond market has sold off. Interest rates have risen. We're back, last I looked, at 1.5% on the 10-year, which is obviously still very low by any historical standard. Back, to, you know, back in the spring of this year, we were at 175. So you know, it's still low, but it has moved up at the same time that we've been getting these weakening economic statistics for Q3. That seems incongruous. So how do you square that circle, Ryan? I know you follow that 10-year yield very closely. I also know you're not buying into my explanation. Yeah, well, let's hear, let's hear your explanation, and All I right, may I'll push back. And yeah. Let's see if Chris buys into it. Okay. Uh, because this is what's happening. Uh, nope. so, <laughs> so when you decompose the 10-year treasury yield into its three main parts, uh, one being in long-term inflation expectations, they haven't budged. So that doesn't explain any of the wiggle in the 10-year treasury yield. Okay. Uh, the expected path of the real Fed funds rate has risen, since the FOMC meeting, when the dot plot showed, you know, uh, the Fed was kind of divided 2022, 2023, but they also raised the amount of tightening uh, in the cycle, and markets responded to that. Market expectations for the expected path of the Fed funds rate rose, uh, you know, since the end of the, the last FOMC meeting. So that explains some of it. And then the Fed also announced tapering, or didn't announce tapering, they, they kind of sent a uh, signal that tapering is coming. And Powell said it's going to be an eight-month eight tapering process, which means that's $15 billion per month. So they're going to go from $120 billion down to zero in the course of eight months. And market consensus, uh, and you can get this from the, the Fed's uh, survey of primary dealers, which they do right before any, OFM, uh, any FOMC meeting, they were expecting $15 billion per FOMC meeting. So shorter tapering window and a little bit more aggressive, that pushed up the term premium or the extra compensation investors need to hold long-term rates versus short-term rates. Well, so okay. the combination okay. between a higher term Sorry. premium Go ahead. Uh -huh. and a higher uh, path for the Fed funds rate has nudged the 10-year treasury yield higher. Okay. Okay. So, so inflation expectations, so 10-year yield equals inflation expectations plus real short-term interest rates plus mm -hmm term premium, which is the 
the, the yield compensation, the extra yield that investors demand for buying a long-term bond versus a short-term security. And uh, you're saying inflation expectations, no change there. Okay, which is actually good. You know, uh, so bond investors don't think inflation's a problem. They think it's mm -hmm. the spike in inflation we've experienced is temporary, transitory, as the Fed would say. Uh, real short-term interest rates have risen, uh, and so that means bond investors are thinking the Fed's going to be a little bit more aggressive in raising short-term interest rates. Uh, in fact, in the dot plot that we got, which shows the forecasts of the FOMC members, the folks on the on the Fed that make policy, they pushed, they pulled forward when they are going to actually begin raising short-term rates into late 2022 as opposed to early 23. So that makes sense. And then you're saying because of this uh, somewhat more aggressive, uh, com at least compared to expectations, bond market expectations, uh, uh, aggressive uh, winding down of quantitative easing, QE bond buying, that has lifted the term premium. Correct. And and it's really those higher, so somewhat higher real short rates and higher term premium. And you don't think the debate discussion over the debt limit is playing any role here? Not at the long end of the yield curve. Short end of the yield curve, very clear evidence that people are getting worried. Got that normal kink in the treasury bill curve. So uh, bills that are maturing right around the drop dead date, which Yellen puts at October 18th, uh, are trading to a premium relative to bills on either side. So we've seen that 2013, 2011, when we had nasty debt ceiling fight to get this kink in the, uh, the treasury bill curve. Uh, but if you also look at you know the auction results for four week treasury bills, very little demand. And that's another telltale sign that investors are you know, starting to think more about the debt ceiling. Okay, so don't you think that also is impacting the term premium then? I mean, it, you, you don't think... Maybe a little... I mean, on the margin, I think tapering on the margin, is much more... I mean, you're, I think you're right. Maybe the debt ceiling is having a little bit. I mean, but maybe... How can it not? I mean, if it's affecting short little. yield, it's got to have some impact. I, I guess it's... On, I think we're still too far away. Margin, too far away. Right. I, I think coming up, that will play a larger role. But right now, just given you know the relative distance to the debt ceiling drop dead date versus markets still digesting the Fed... I think, I think the Fed's driving rates up. It's not a taper yeah. tantrum like 2013. It's still pretty orderly. Oh yeah, right. Uh, okay, very interesting. So, um, do you think the run up in the ten-year yield has more to run here, or is it going to? I mean, our our forecast is for the ten-year yield to end the year. I'm, you know, roughly speaking, one seven five. So that's it's up 25 basis points. And then to keep rising next year as the economy continues to improve and approaches full employment, we're sticking to that. We're we're good with that. Chris, that's the Moody's Analytics forecast. I yes, Ryan. Yeah. You Ryan. guys still this don't Ryan think Sweet that's going to happen. Other. We're twenty five no, basis whoa, points away. Whoa! Don't throw me under the bus on this one. <laughs> we Maverick. We. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Although I think we had a bet. We have to go back to the. Tapes Tape. here. I think I think you're on the lower end, right? He's I think on, there is a difference. Ryan's on the lower end, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I was on the high end. But you're what, on the high you, end. are you are you saying what you don't think one seven five makes you're uncomfortable with that? At this point, you're uncomfortable with one seven five. Feels a little high. Ten year yield, end of year, twenty five basis high. points away. A little high. A little high. Mm -hmm. Chris, a little a little high, but really, 
Goodness gracious, we, we rose 25 basis points in one week, maybe 10 we days. Can go, we can go down 25 basis points. In Be, and why would that happen exactly? Don't answer that question. I don't care. Well, You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> What's right. Tapering I mean, doesn't actually kick in, right? Okay. Right, or uh, Congress completely falls apart and we don't get an infrastructure bill that has been priced into the bond market. Ah, well, let's go there. That's a good place to go. I was, that, that was where I wanted to go next because, you know, this has been a busy week in D.C. Uh, I guess the good news is that Congress and the administration came to terms on a short-term funding bill for to keep the government open uh, as of today, the start of the new federal fiscal year, October 1. It's a short-term December, funding right? bill, continuing resolution through early December, I believe. Uh, so that's good news. Dodge that. that. I guess that was, you know, a modest bullet, right? If, yeah. I, if, Until December. Just yeah, kicking the can. Just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Uh, but, but you know, uh, that gets us to the, um, to the, uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, infrastructure package and the uh, reconciliation bill for, you know, spending and tax credits for social very social programs and climate change because if that's passed then there is no funding issue you know that resolves the funding issue you know for the remainder because that that's the budget going forward so right now uh we are assuming and i think the bond market and other investors are roughly assuming the same thing that the infrastructure package gets passed right uh that democrats uh right now they're uh, democratic houses embroiled in the Democrats are trying to figure out how to thread the needle here politically and get uh, moderate Democrats and uh, progressive Democrats together and sign on the dotted line. We're assuming that that happens, you know, maybe not today, but in the near future. So that would be, you know, an additional 550, 575 billion over 10 years on public infrastructure. And then we're also assuming that this reconciliation bill, which just requires all democratic votes uh, in the Senate, uh, is uh, not going to be 3.5 trillion over 10. That's kind of sort of what's on the table right now, but it ultimately ends up being 2.5 trillion uh, and kind of splitting the difference between the 3.5 trillion on the table and the 1.5 trillion that Joe Manchin, the uh, centrist uh, Democrat from West Virginia, has said that he would be comfortable for. So my take is, he said one five, three and a half on the table. The compromise is two and a half, and of that two and a half, um, roughly a trillion and a half is uh, maybe a little bit more is paid for with tax increases. So you get a budget deficit over the next ten years that's about a trillion higher. Uh, than it otherwise would have been without the legislation. That's what we're assuming. Ryan, let me ask you this. Do you think, and I know it's impossible to know, but is your sense that that's what investors are discounting? Yeah, is I think that, so. I think that's, that's close. Yeah. Yep. Close. They're definitely not pricing in three and a half trillion. And they're not pricing in nothing. They're, they're right. Yeah. So it's in, I think splitting the difference is appropriate. Right. So if, if, if they don't pass that, if they can't get the reconciliation bill through and they can't get the infrastructure bill through, what happens in markets? You'll see the 10-year drop. You, you think the 10-year will yeah. drop? Not a lot, it, but it will come back uh, down. It'll come back down. Well, yeah, because they're, they're, of less growth. Correct. Right. 
that would be my my inclination as well my thought as well chris same perspective yeah i don't think it's a lot though i don't think that's a yeah. major factor right. we might go back down to one and a quarter or one one three some all this this run-up we saw in the last 10 days will, right. will kind of get yeah. wiped out right of course then my forecast for the end of the year will be wrong and more likely to be wrong and yours is more likely to be right okay mm -hmm. okay so I, I, let me ask you this uh what probability and again this is our baseline f assumption around fiscal policy but what is your your own subjective probability of that baseline coming to pass we get that infrastructure bill we get that 2.5 trillion reconciliation bill what do you think uh, ryan what, should, what what what's what probability do you put on that 40%. Oh, so you don't think it's going to happen? I'm getting increasingly pessimistic. Uh, both bills, both infrastructure and reconciliation? Oh, no, I, no, I think infrastructure is a done deal. I, I, oh, you do? I thinking, okay. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a done deal. They'll, they'll figure that one out. I'm concerned that they're not going to be able to pass uh, the reconciliation one. Oh, okay. At two and a half trillion. Yeah. Oh, okay. Think you think it could be something be smaller than that? Are you saying two trillion could be a ceiling? I think so. Oh, you're saying we, we we'll probably get a bill, but it's not going to be two and a half trillion. Yeah, it's not going to be two and a half. So, what's the probability of a one point five trillion dollar bill reconciliation bill? Seventy, seventy percent. Oh, okay, fine. Okay, yeah. I, I hear you. I got it. Now I understand. Okay, have you uh, been to Chris, DC? Pardon me. Have you been called down to DC recently? You need to give them a pep talk. I well, no, I physically haven't been down there. A lot of Zoom calls, uh, you know, a lot going on. Uh, Bernard Yaros and, and I have been doing a lot of work, and, and on obviously on the debt limit, we have a paper out that if folks haven't read, uh, you can find on Economic View or you can just Google, uh, which I think has had some impact on the debate and discussion around the debt limit. And we've uh, done a lot of analysis of these various fiscal, various elements of the fiscal package of the reconciliation and the infrastructure plan. So I've been doing a lot of work around that. Chris, what is your uh, probability, what probability assessment of, of this? It's a pretty close to Ryan. I, I think the infrastructure will, will go through. I'm more pessimistic though on even, you know, 2 trillion or even, even 1.5 trillion. I just really, I the, yeah, I think the negotiations are just going to break down here. I don't so, know that so, so Ryan puts a 70% probability on 1.5 trillion, 40% probability on 2.5 trillion. What Probably are your 50-50 on each? 50-50. Right? That's a typical Chris response. Oh, geez. No, I know. I know. I know. He's, I know. That's what he does. Yeah. You can't pin him down. Chris, 49 or 51? Which is it? <laughs> on which one? Yeah. On yeah. 1.5? Yeah, I know. That's okay. No, that's fair. 50-50. You're basically you're saying you're not you just really don't have a good you you don't have a view a strong view one way or the other. Yeah, I think it's really to placate Mansion, you're going to lose the the progress, right? So I, I I don't see how this. So probably I'm I'm putting even more weight on nothing, right? There's such a stalemate that Yeah. We just kick the can. We continue to revise the bill and it's in, kicked into next year. Got it. Well, I, I say 75% probability on the infrastructure and two-thirds probability on on some form of reconciliation bill. I, Ryan, I hear you. I, it could it could definitely be less than two and a half trillion, somewhere between one and a half and two and a half. I say two-thirds probability. Um, I just think, you know, the Democrats understand 
well, first of all, I think this is good economics and they understand the politics of it. If they don't get something through, then it means, well, I think in the mind of the kind of the much of the electorate that they can't govern, you know, they couldn't get it together. Right. And that's not good, uh, you know, for the midterm elections, which are already going to be pretty rough, you know, just given history uh, for the incumbent party, the midterms are always tough. So I, I think that wins the day and they come to terms some one way or the other. And, you know, what's going on now, I know this may be Pollyannish, but my view is this is a good thing that they're debating, discussing, going back and forth. It's not fun to watch, but I actually think it makes for a lot better legislation. You know, they really, you know, uh, hone in on what their top priorities are and, you know, what's most going to be most uh, cost effective and important to them. And we get a better piece of legislation out of it. So I view it as a you know, kind of a positive process. The, the legislative process, you know, people, the uh, court, the uh, analogy is sausage making. And I think it is kind of like sausage making, but, you know, I think it makes for a better sausage, you know, at the end of the day. So, so anyway. would you and Chris sign on if it's just one and a half trillion? Well, Chris, I know wouldn't still. You mean if that's my only if one and a half or choice is one and a half, 1.5 or nothing? Yeah. So, yeah, I'd sign on. Right. Yeah. What's in that 1.5? Good stuff. What are you? What are you? Yeah. Pro- <laughs> <laughs> what are you good part of sausage. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I know you like the. Uh, I think you, you're 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 partial to the child tax credit. I believe, aren't you? I do child tax credit and the EITC, yeah. the earned income tax credit. Yeah, I think there's I think there's a lot of good things in there that we need to pursue. Yeah. Anyway, that's a, that's a topic anyway, for we've yeah. had in previous podcasts and, and yeah. future podcasts. This is, you know, we got to move on. Let's go to uh, the big topic and um, the longer term consequences of the pandemic. And uh, uh, I think there are potentially many, uh, but I think we'll, the way we'll do this is we'll, uh, we'll each identify a consequence we think is particularly important and uh, kind of just lay that out and uh, we'll have a little bit of a discussion around that. Um, and, and I will say, uh, just to preface it, that uh, one of the long-term consequences that I was fearful of, ha- of happening uh, as a result of the pandemic isn't, is not going to, and that's scarring, the so-called concept of scarring, that you, know, you go through a wrenching uh, kind of downturn or uh, shock like a pandemic, and that creates all kinds of bankruptcies and failures and uh, just uh, really scrambles the economy to such a degree that its long-term prospects are impaired. So if we had seen a lot of business failure, it would have been much more difficult for the economy to recover, kick back into gear and to you know, get back uh, its groove. But that, that did not happen. Uh, and that's very fortuitous. And I think a lot of that goes to the policy response. It was so aggressive that both on the monetary side and on the fiscal side that allow the economy to avoid those scarring effects. In fact, to some degree, I don't know if you've been following, but uh, uh, we did get an elevated level of, of failure, but it was business failure, but it was pretty modest compared to my fears. And uh, countervailing that, something that I did not expect at all, but is evident, is a surge in business formation, You know, at least judging by the number of businesses, new businesses that are filing for taxpayer identification numbers with really cool data. And that has surged. I mean, amazing. And it's across almost every industry. I think every industry is up a lot across every part of the country. 
So it feels like this pandemic has unleashed a certain amount of entrepreneurism. And so no scarring effects. And I think that's a, you know, a very positive thing. And one reason why it's, uh, uh, to be optimistic that the economy can you know, get back all lost and back to full employment here pretty quickly, at least compared to past recessions, certainly compared to uh, the uh, expansion after the financial crisis when there was a lot of scarring that we had to kind of work through to get back to, to full swing. Well, we just had a series of technical difficulties. First, Ryan's Zoom crashed, and uh, he's now back up and running. But uh, then I got kicked out, uh, so now I'm back. So, um, you know, sorry about that, but let's kick back in here. That's, I'm just letting you know this, listener, because we might, I might sound a little bit different now, uh, but uh, we're all together again. So let's, uh, let's pick up the conversation with uh, long-term consequences of the pandemic and Ryan, I, I was turning to you. Um, what's at the top of your list of long-term consequences of the pandemic? What would you like to highlight? I think something that's going to be with us for an extended period of time is uh, the large amounts of sovereign debt. So, in response to the pandemic, you know, uh, you know various countries—I mean, they did the right thing. They were very aggressive with fiscal stimulus, fiscal support, uh, but you know, that caused the debt to GDP ratio in a number of countries to skyrocket. Uh, and eventually, you know, that's not on a sustainable pace. Uh, we're going to have to get, you know, even in the U.S., our fiscal house in order. Uh, and I'm a little concerned how other countries are going to address this, given, you know, the varying degree of economic recovery and when interest rates begin to normalize. Because right now, everything's fine. Uh, interest payments are still very, very low because rates are rock bottom. But in a rising interest rate environment, I think we're going to start to see some uh, some warts emerge. Yeah, that's a bold statement, and and you're uh, you're thinking that a couple three years down the road, this is what? How does it manifest itself? This uh, this issue? I mean, we could have a repeat of the the sovereign debt crisis. It doesn't have to necessarily be in Europe. Uh, it could be somewhere else. Uh, but I think just given the amount of debt that was accumulated. Uh, you know, over the last you know, 12, 18 months, you know, I don't think we're not going to get out of this without at least a couple hiccups. Because, I mean, remember, the bond market, debt doesn't matter until the bond market says it matters. And you just don't can't predict when they're going to say uh, it matters for some of these countries. Right. And, and do you have any countries in, in mind or? I mean, you're not saying the United States uh, or are you? Uh, no, or, no, or no, are you? Nothing. No, not the U.S. Yeah. I mean, we have to get okay. our fiscal house in order, uh, and I think we will, but you know, not next year, not the year after that. No, I'm not worried about the – I mean, I'm, I'm losing a little bit of sleep about the debt ceiling, but you take that out. Uh, no, I'm not worried about the debt-to-GB ratio in the U.S. Uh, and I'm, I'll make a bold statement, but I'm not going to pinpoint a country. I mean, that's going – that's like a perfect crystal ball, which I don't have. Right. Okay. And – I guess the the concern is predicated on uh, rising interest rates. That interest rates mm -hmm. rise. Are you saying they they simply have to normalize, go back to what pre-pandemic levels, and this this will be a problem? Or do you think they have to go even higher than this to be for this to be an issue? They probably have to go higher. And again, I mean, a lot of conditions have to fall in place. But you know, the the assumption that we're going to get out of this gracefully, I think is a little bit of a stretch. You know, some central banks are going to overdo it. Uh, they'll tighten too much. Uh, and that could cause, you know, some problems down the road for, uh, you know, uh, countries that have a lot of sovereign debt. 
Right. And uh, uh, you also mentioned corporate debt. Uh, mm-hmm. Same kind of, uh, I, I guess, the Evergrande, uh, the Chinese real estate company that has now defaulted on its debt, uh, is symptomatic of your concern around corporate debt globally. Correct. Is, is, I see. And do you, do you think that's as big a deal here in the United States as it is in um, in other parts of the world, or just this, this is a big deal here in the U.S. as well? I think it's the biggest deal in China. Uh, in the U.S., I'm not that concerned, because when we had the, the hiccup or the heightened angst around Evergrande, uh, if you look at corporate bond spreads in the U.S., they remained very, very tight. I mean, they widened a little bit, but they're still historically low. And even looking at credit spreads up and down the credit ladder, uh, you know, from your investment grade all the way down to your very low grade uh, corporate debt, they didn't, you know, re- really respond. Uh, and you know, businesses, corporate profits, as you mentioned before, are very, very strong. Uh, you know, uh, profit margins are are still pretty wide. Uh, Businesses are flush with cash, so I'm not too concerned about uh, any issues on the uh, uh, U.S. corporate side. Even the high-yield corporate bond market, I mean, demand for uh, that issuance is still really, really strong. It's on fire this year, uh, so that will wane, that will that will soften. But you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not too concerned about uh, the corporate side. All right, Chris, what do you think of uh, uh, Ryan's uh, consequence? Do you, are you? Do you share his level of concern? Well, uh, perhaps not broad-based. I think there will be uh, certainly some countries on the periphery that are exposed, and as rates ri- rise, they they will have problems. So I, I think we are mm-hmm. due for for some of those uh, signals, but uh, I don't see it. Uh, I don't see yet the conditions for that spilling over to broader, certainly global or even regional crises at this point. Mm-hmm. But, but Ryan, you're saying there's a reason, reasonably high probability that two, three, maybe four years down the road, as rates rise, we're going to see some kind of event, if, if not a crisis, some kind of event, in the, particularly in the sovereign debt market, but in, uh, I guess in corporate debt markets as well, overseas, outside of the U.S., that uh, will be a long-term consequence of this pandemic, something that we still have to work through. Yeah, and I don't think it's going to be a, a crisis. It's not going to be, when I say a repeat of the sovereign debt crisis, on a much smaller scale. So before it was the Portugal's, Italy's, Spain's, and Greece's. You know, maybe, like Chris said, another country on the periphery that, you know, where we see this this issue. And at the time, we'll be able to look back and say that was pandemic related. Uh, so I think it's going to be more like that, you know, here and there, uh, sprinkled across the, the regions. I don't think it's going to be, you know, a global uh, debt crisis. Right. What about, well, what about I, I, oh, sorry, what about zombie corporations though, right? There's a lot of talk about some corporations that are limping along here, benefiting from the low rates, you know, and actually would be perhaps even therapeutic to go through some right. reorganization here. Do you see that on the horizon? Or? Yeah, it's probably on the horizon. I mean, the U.S. will experience some of this, but not until, you know, 2024 when the Fed starts to, you know, once rates get, high enough where they start to, to bite into the economy. So it's still a little ways off. Well, I'm, I'm sympathetic to this concern. Um, you know, in fact, I, I think uh, it will be difficult for policymakers to actually become more fiscally disciplined without 
interest rates rising to a significant degree and putting pressure on economies so that uh, they can connect the dots for the electorate that, you know, here's why we have to be more fiscally disciplined. Because, you know, if rates don't rise, then what do, what do policymakers say to people? Why are we raising taxes? Why are we cutting spending or restraining spending growth? Because why? I mean, what's the logic behind that, right? So there's got to be something that policymakers can point to to say, hey, this is the reason why. In fact, the last time in the, I think, in the U.S. that policymakers showed any kind of fiscal discipline was in the early uh, mid-1990s under Clinton, President Clinton, and then Treasury Secretary Rubin. And that was the period of so-called bond market vigilantes. So the, the bond market investors would, uh, you know, drive interest rates up, if, uh, and they were driving them up because of the fiscal situation. The, the, the nation's uh, federal government interest payments share of GDP was at a record high. We we're spending more on interest than we were on the military budget. And so the bond market was kind of losing it. Interest rates were rising. Secretary Rubin could point, could say to uh, President Clinton, hey, look, this is why we have to do it. President Clinton was able then to uh, articulate, you know, the economic logic behind why we need to be fiscally disciplined to the, to the population. And we got legislation. He, he backed away from his fiscal support packages. And, you know, uh, we, by the end of the decade, many reasons for it, but at the end of the decade, uh, we had a surplus. I think in the, in fiscal year 2000, we had a surplus. Believe it or not, that was the last surplus the federal government ever ran. So I, it's all. I think you're right, Ryan. I think it, it's almost uh, unless interest rates just remain low for so long, for for much longer, for reasons that you know we're not accounting for, not contemplating. Uh, we need those higher rates to actually get get the discipline. We need that kind of event. We need that pressure to get the political will to actually address the fiscal situation. I don't know how you feel about that argument. No, I, I, I think you and I are, are in agreement. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, that's a good one. Um, I think uh, you're right. I mean, uh, that I think that's a, a kind of a dark tale of the uh, of the uh, pandemic. Uh, something that um, we're going to have to work through down the road. Uh, Chris, well, uh, what's I, I knew top of your I, list? I knew Mark was oh, going to pick something, you know, rosy that came out of the pandemic. So I, I had to pick something dark. It's kind of offset it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, no. Uh, it might, uh, wait, you know, I, I we'll think see. mine's, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, uh, Chris, what is your, uh, what's the top of your list of long-term consequences? Yeah, uh, lots of consequences, but I, I would, uh, I would actually group many of them under the uh, demographic impact, right? So mm. I, I look at the pandemic, uh, lots of the demographic changes were accelerated. Uh, birth rates, just one example, right? Birth rates collapsed uh, back in 2020, and they've started to come up a bit. But I suspect, given the lack of housing as well, and household formations were also suppressed, that we won't get back up to the birth rates that we had prior to the pandemic, and which were already on the down uh, the downtrend. So I, I think we've kind of accelerated that that trend, and that has all sorts of consequences in terms of labor market. Uh, supply right, of, of workers in the future has implications for the housing market in terms of new household formation, say 10, 20 years from now. So looking further out, I think we will continue to see the impacts of the pandemic kind of making their way throughout uh, the economy. 
really just accelerating those some of the trends that were already in place in terms of, uh, of the demographic slowdown. And I see that globally as well. It's not just the U.S. where we see this downtrend in terms of fertility, but uh, across across the globe, you know, developed as well as less developed countries, you're seeing those um, those population rate or those birth rates to decline. And I, I expect that uh, we will see population leveling out sooner than what we would have projected prior to the pandemic. Yeah, I know. That's a good point. Uh, and uh, so it's fertility rates. Um, I guess death rates are up I mean, just by definition uh, and because of the pandemic. And and uh, immigration uh, is significantly impaired, uh, has been significantly impaired. And I, I don't see that changing, you know, for a while either. Even, you know, even before the pandemic, obviously, it was under a lot of pressure politically. But, you know, uh, in the pandemic world we're in, uh, I think immigration patterns will be significantly curtailed. That, so that's a good yeah. one. Uh, that has all kinds of long-term implications for the economy, for sure. Um, did you mention the uh, the uh, uh, retirement, uh, the, the kind of the mass retirement of the baby boomers uh, in the in the pandemic? Is that, that that I, that certainly I missed that. Not, I did not mention that, but that certainly feeds into the demographic effects here as well, and. It uh, highlights just the aging of the population overall, and you do have a number of baby boomers who, you know, affected by the pandemic, perhaps approaching the retirement years, and uh, perhaps taking advantage of some asset price appreciation on their retirement portfolios or house prices to take early retirement. So that that I I, I certainly expect to see that. I think those labor force participation rates are not going back up. I think they're they're going to remain suppressed. So that's. In terms of the near-term effect, I think that's going to be substantial. It's going to contribute to lack of uh, labor supply. So, yeah, uh, for the, for that reason, I think we'll have automation uh, speeding up. All right, so some of the durable goods uh, spending statistics we talked about earlier, I think we'll continue to see that push because we just don't have enough uh, workers to go around, and we'll probably wake up too late uh, to immigration policies. Meaning, when we decide that you know we need to let more people into the country, it just won't be there, right? Cause, because there are, uh, there's a shortage of workers globally. That it may be difficult to attract more and more people. Right, so, so a, a long-term consequence of the pandemic, uh, you know, a lot of demographic effects, but one of the more significant in terms of the economic consequences is, mm-hmm. is uh, lab- uh, the impact on labor supply. It'll be more impaired. I mean, we were going to have... I, I think we're going to have labor supply issues. Yeah, regardless. Even without yeah. the pandemic, right? Yeah. For sure. I just think we accelerated it, right? We accelerated it, yeah. And, per, per, and I, I think you're right. I think we actually exacerbated it, right? I mean, I think um, that, uh, that uh, you know, the immigration, of the foreign immigration effects are going to be long-lasting, and that significantly affects labor supply and, uh, that's going to be a big deal going forward. Okay, that's the, that's a really good one as well. Uh, although that's also pretty dark, right? I mean, not very optimistic. Uh, okay, so another kind of dark tale of the pandemic. All right. Well, uh, I, I I'm going to pick one that I think uh, has po- positives and negatives. Uh, and I and I would I would argue this may be the single most important consequence of the pandemic, at least in terms of, again, its economic implications, and that's remote work. Uh, you know, we've talked about this in the past on, on the podcast and still a fair amount of debate about it, 
But, you know, I I think increasingly less so. Uh, You know, if you go back six, 12 months, certainly 12 months ago, six months ago, I think there was a fair amount of debate whether remote work was here to stay. And I I think that debate is fading away. I, I think it's pretty clear that some form of remote work is is going to be with us going forward. You know, I think most companies are kind of adopting a kind of a hybrid, you know, uh, you work from home more often, come into the office two, three uh, days a week. Uh, but, you know, increasingly, I think companies are saying, hey, you can live anywhere you want. You don't necessarily need to come into the office. And, uh, you know, as technology continues to improve, uh, that'll, that, that'll be empowered. And given that tight labor market that we just talked about, I think um, workers have the upper hand here. And uh, it feels like not not all workers, maybe not younger workers, but uh, most, I think, really like working from home. Um, they're not really sure about going back to the office. I, I mean, I, I kind of feel that way. I, I mean, I really like working, on, although given the technical difficulties we just had, uh, you know, it's a little frustrating. But uh, we'll, we'll overcome those, and, and I think uh, the technology will improve, and I think remote work is here to stay. And the implications are massive, right? I mean, uh, w- one is just uh, 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 where people live and the impact on, on econ- regional economies. I mean, we collect this data from uh, based on credit files from Equifax, get a 10% sample of all the credit files in the country every month, and it's anonymized, but we can see addresses, and so we can track address changes. And here's a statistic. Uh, Prior to the pandemic, say in the year through February of 2020, uh, roughly 275,000 more people left urban cores of uh, U.S. uh, metropolitan areas, there's a little over 400 metropolitan areas across the country, than came they came to them. So uh, 275,000 more people left urban areas for suburbs, exurbs, and rural areas than came from those areas into the urban core. In August of this year, that's the last data point we have, uh, it was uh, close to 600,000. 600,000 more people left those urban cores. And, you know, it, it feels like it's topping out, but it doesn't feel like it's rolling over. It doesn't feel like it's coming in at all. And, uh, you know, I think that just goes to, uh, you know, this, this dynamic, this remote work dynamic. And, you know, the, the, if you look, uh, the, uh, the top 10 uh, cities that are losing people on net, uh, you know, mostly in the Northeast Corridor, Boston, New York, Philly, D.C., uh, also uh, in California, no, no surprise, Bay Area, L.A., Seattle, uh, Miami, also losing a lot of people. And they're going to people in the northeast or in the northeast quarter are going to uh, you know Atlanta and Charlotte and Charleston and Jacksonville, Florida, Tampa, Austin, Texas, and the people leaving California and Seattle are moving to Boise and Salt Lake and Denver and Phoenix and Tucson and Vegas, and that has so so many implications for for those economies, it has implications for real estate markets, uh, housing markets, commercial real estate markets. It has implications for um, fiscal situations of state and local governments. I mean, I you know I can go on and on and on. I mean, it's a it's a big deal, and I just don't see that going going back uh, backwards. I think that's that that and, and and by the way, Chris, you mentioned that you know, on the demographic side, pandemic just reinforced trends that were already in place. 
I'm not sure that trend, this trend was in place. I think it's a new trend. This is kind of an inflection point. You know, this is like a, you know, something I don't, you know, maybe it would eventually happen, but, you know, the pandemic really you know, caused a big shift here all at once. Um, so I think it's a big deal. Uh, not necessarily negative. I, I don't think that. Uh, just a, an adjustment. And ultimately, you know, perhaps even a positive because, uh, it, uh, you know, uh, I think it ultimately uh, uh, this works because it, you know, improves uh, productivity. You know, people are able to be more effective in their work because they're working where they want to work. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. I don't know. Do you, what do you guys think about all this? Do you have a, a different perspective on this, uh, a different view? Or are you in agreement? I would I would generally agree that you know you get better matching, right? Certainly, that's one mm. uh, immediate effect. However, I, I wouldn't want to overstate it either, right? There are lots of jobs still, the majority of jobs that don't lend themselves to remote work. So, uh, yeah, just a little bit of a, a, a caution there. Yeah, it's for the yeah, good point. Upper income, upper educated uh, population, sure, big game changer. Other parts of the distribution, maybe not so much, right? still need to be in person and you know those jobs may not have shifted as much as we think right hey good point good point ryan any any comments on this any insight no i agree with chris i think he made a great point but i have yeah yeah nothing else i mean a personal anecdote like i thought uh during the pandemic that uh you know i teach at a local university and i thought online education was just going to you know that's the new way. That's where we're going. Back in person now. So, and there's yeah, no indication that they want to, you know, move back online. They, you know, they want in class, you know, teaching and everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, they're. You're, that's a good point. Uh, well, just tying it all back to where we started when I was down in Miami speaking to that real estate group uh, organization, uh, NAOP, uh, which includes office uh, developers and, and owners. As you can imagine, they weren't too thrilled with this. Uh, I, I talked about remote work and the impact <laughs> on real estate markets and office markets in particular, and they they weren't uh, particularly uh, they they weren't buying in to the same degree you guys are. They were, in fact, they they argued. I mean, and they argued via questions. They a lot of people pose questions about the uh, the uh, mental health consequences of remote work. For workers, uh, particularly younger workers, uh, who you know uh, use workplaces as a you know a form of a, a socialization, it's also important to be at work uh, to uh, develop uh, relationships, uh, mentorships, and that kind of thing. And their their view was again via their questioning, uh, it appeared they were uh, not so sure that the remote work was going to be quite as prevalent as at least I was arguing, but, uh, but, but, but we'll, we'll see, uh, see about that. I, in fact, you know, I think this, uh, this, uh, uh, this topic of long-term consequences would make for a good book. What do you guys think? We, I think we should write a book. I think that would, you could, there's, there's many, many more consequences and I think people would find that interesting. I don't know. What do you guys think? Would that be a good book? I'd read it. I'd read it. Well, how so about would, it? would you write it? Really? That's a question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you read it. I need someone to help write it. Yeah, I don't know. I think we couple should chapters. do that. Yeah, we each take a couple yeah. chapters. Yeah, I think it's yeah, a good that's idea. what I'm saying. Yeah, we mm-hmm. all get together. You know, whoever wants to participate, and we each write a chapter or two or three, and and um, I think it would. I think people would find that interesting, don't you? 
Absolutely. Maybe you have yeah, some bets yeah. in there along the way. You know. Yeah, a few bets. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. count on making any money, but you know, <laughs> I think it'll be interesting to do. Okay. Sure. All right. For well, sure. uh, this has been a, a little odd podcast. We've had so, so many technical difficulties. Hopefully. Uh, it hasn't been too disruptive for the listener, but uh, we're glad that you uh, stuck with us. And um, uh, next week is uh, the jobs number, so uh, that'll be, a, 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 I think, a very interesting podcast. And then we have a number of guests coming on after that to talk about different topics, including uh, climate change and ESG and lots of other things coming up. So looking forward to that. Uh, so till uh, next week, uh, thank you very much. Uh, we'll, we'll see you soon. Take care now. Mm-hmm.